testimony, if I might, concerning my younger brother. His name it was Jerry. He died a few years ago. But let me tell you a little bit about his testimony. Just like me and my older brother, the three of us were raised in a Christian home by godly parents, praying parents. That doesn't mean we always did right. I could give you a long list of my failures and sins of the past. But we all served the Lord, you know, pretty much from our late teens on into our 20s and 30s and so forth and so on. But when my younger brother got out on his own, he never did stop coming to church. But he was living in sin, just coming to church out of a sense of routine. But my younger brother, actually, he actually backslid. And living away from God... Our hearts were broken for him. But let me tell you how God helped him get ready. He had a dream one night. Now later on when my brother came back to God, he shared this dream with the whole church. That's when I first heard about it. But he told us the dream. He said in this dream he was in a church and it was a time for a wedding. And his part in the dream was to help the bride get ready. And said they were back in a little room and he was making sure every hair, her hair was in place. She had the flowers. She had the wedding gown and everything was ready. The music was playing. It was time to walk down the aisle. And so in the dream they go you know, to the back doors of the sanctuary and the doors swing open. All the candles are lit. The people are there. The flowers are in place. The minister is ready. And he tells the bride, it's your cue. It's time. You know, head down that aisle. And in the dream she looks down at her feet. And she had one shoe on and one shoe off. She said, I thought I was ready, but I'm not ready. And so in the dream, my brother Jerry goes back into the little dressing room and he's looking for that shoe. He's looking in boxes and bags and under the table. And he's looking frantic and he knows it's time for her to walk down that aisle and she's not ready. And my brother woke up from that dream and he was searching frantically and in a panic looking for that shoe. And the Lord spoke to him and said, your time is coming soon and you're not ready. And he rolled out of that bed and got down on his knees and he repented and he made things right with God. And he came to church and he told everybody in church that story. And I don't think the preacher even preached on that day. People begin to go to the altar and make sure that they were ready to meet God. I want to tell you something tonight, friend. Who knows? This could be the last night I ever get to preach a sermon to you. And this could be the last night that you're ever in church. We don't know that. And if you'll listen to an ant preach for a few moments, the ant would say, Get ready! Get ready for death. Get ready for the coming of the Lord. Somebody shout, get ready, get ready, get ready. How do you get, how do you get ready? You get ready through repentance. You get ready through surrendering your life completely to Jesus. You might need to get ready by going to somebody and apologizing for what you said or what you did. Does that make sense to anybody? It's all about getting ready and staying ready. And the Bible said, prepare to meet your God. The scripture said, therefore, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you think not. Best advice from the ant, get ready. Let's go to creature number two, which is a coney, which is similar to a rabbit. Best advice from the coney, stay near the rock. The kingdom principle is one of survival. Proverbs 30, 26 says, conies are creatures of little power. Here's their advantage now. Yet they make their home in the crags. Now the crags is referring to the cracks and the crevices 
in the rocks and in the boulders. A coney is not exactly a rabbit, but it's similar. According to my research, a coney is a small, grayish, rabbit-like animal that lives among the rocks. Now, this is an advantage. His fur is about the same color as the boulders in which he's hiding. So as long as he stays pretty close to that rock, he's kind of camouflaged. You can't, you know, the, the predators might not see him there. And here's the deal with these little conies, these little rabbit-like animals. If they get too far away from the rock, they have no defense on their own. Their teeth are not really all that sharp. Their claws are not really all that sharp. They, they're not really quick or fast or agile. So whenever one of the predators come, they have no defense. They cannot fight off the, the, the predator, the enemy. According to my research, they are vulnerable to attack from snakes, eagles, buzzards, leopards, lions, even a mongoose. But as long as the coney stays near the rock, he's camouflaged, plus he can sneak in between the crevices of the boulder and he is completely safe. If he wanders too far from the rock, He's vulnerable and in danger. I think you know where I'm going with this, especially when you know that Jesus is the rock. Now, if you'll listen to the ant say, get ready, then maybe we ought to listen to the coney say, stay near the rock. The further you get from Jesus, the more trouble you're in. But the closer you stay to Jesus, the better off you are. Clap your hands and give God some praise. Stay as close to God as you possibly can because the more you compromise and the more you drift away and the further from the rock you get, the more danger you are in. So I thought I would try to find maybe some character in the Bible that would help me to illustrate or, or display that. And I think I found a classic example. Samson. Samson compromised and got too far from the rock. And you know where it led it, to his defeat. Here's the thing that gets me about Samson. I cannot figure this out. When he was with Delilah on their very first date, she asked him a question that should have alerted him to trouble. She said, what could be done to you to make you become weak like any other man. And he lied to her to start with and says, well, if you tie me up with some brand new ropes, I'll be weak. And he took a little nap, and when he woke up, she had him tied up with some brand new ropes. That would have been my last date with Delilah. Let me update the story. Suppose I'm in Samson's place. And since this is my sermon, I'm laying on the love couch and she's playing with my long curly locks. <laughs> this is my sermon. I'm going to preach it the way I want to. And suppose Delilah playing with my long hair, curly hair, says, oh, come on, Cliffy, baby, tell me something. What could be done to you to make you weak like any other man? I mean, what, what kind of question is that? What if, if I was going to update the story, what if she said, oh, come on, tell me the four-digit PIN number to your credit card. If she asked me that on our first date, that would also be our last date. 
because she's got ulterior motives. But Samson was drifting too far from the rock. He was born with a God-given purpose. He, he was born to be a Nazarite, separated unto God all of his life. And he was drifting too far from the rock. And I could just almost see that little coney over there preaching from the top of the rock, Samson, you're getting too far from the rock. And Samson's drifting and he's flirting with disaster and he's toying with Delilah. And one thing led to the next until finally he told his whole heart, he said, I've been a Nazarite since my birth, and if you cut my hair, it's a sign or a symbol of my connection with God. He woke up from a nap, and they had shorn his hair. And he got up, and he was absent what he had had before. And we find him grinding in the prison house. The Bible said, I would that you sin not, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. I'll tell you what I like about the end of Samson's story. The scripture says, however, his hair began to grow out. Again, it was a sign of his separation to God. He stood between two middle pillars, his left hand on one pillar and his right hand on the other. And God anointed him one final time. But if Samson were here tonight, he would stand side by side on the rock with the coney and shout to you, stay near the rock. Stay near Jesus. Stay in church. Stay in the Word of God. Stay in your prayer closet. Go back to Mount Calvary. Stay in the upper room. Stay in revival. Get as close to God as you possibly can. Some of you may remember May the 18th, 1980. That was the day that Mount St. Helens erupted. How many remember that? Some of your hands are going up. That's a senior citizen. See all their hands up right there? <laughs> May the 18th, 1980 was the day that Mount St. Helens erupted a volcano. And the story tells us, true story, that there was a man who owned uh, like a little novelty shop or a convenience store, and apparently his parents named him after the former president. This guy's name was actually Harry Truman. And he was warned by all the emergency people that were there that that volcano was going to erupt. They had been picking up seismic movement and pressures under the earth, and they were pretty sure it was going to be an explosion. And many of the people in that area went to safe ground. But old Mr. Harry didn't believe the report. When they asked him to leave, multiple times asked him to leave, here's what he said. I have enough food and whiskey to last me for 15 years. That was his response. But on May the 18th, 1980, Mount St. Helens exploded. It had not erupted in 123 years. Harry said, I've been living here my whole life. It's never erupted. It's not going to erupt now. He didn't believe the report. But it did. And I did the research. I want to tell you this accurately. The pressure with which that mountainside exploded was equal to 24 megatons of TNT. Well, what is 24 megatons of TNT? It is 500 times greater 
than the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima in World War II. 500 times. That's the equivalency. A plume of smoke went up into the atmosphere 15 miles high. And when the ash began to settle, it settled in 11 different states. It was a massive explosion. Those statistics surprised me. But let me give you the statistic that surprised me the most. The lava that was flowing was flowing at 670 miles per hour. I didn't know if lava could flow over 600 miles per hour. You can't outrun that. Your car cannot outrun that. Even if after the explosion he thought, oh, maybe I've got time. He didn't have time because the lava was flowing at 670 miles per hour. He and 56 other people died. But he didn't have to if he would have just listened to the warning. In a church some time back, a preacher felt so convinced of the Holy Spirit to walk back to these two or three guys that were on the back row and ask them to come to the altar and get saved. They, they didn't want any part of God. They didn't want any part of Jesus. They were laughing at the preacher. They were mocking at the people in the service. And they just got right up and just, they just left the church. They just went out and got in their sports car and just sped off. It wasn't 20 or 30 minutes later the policeman showed up and begin to ask for some you know, identifications. If anybody knew this cup, this, these uh, three teenagers that were in this car, that car wrecked two and a half miles up a road and killed all three of them. And the preacher told them, you don't know how close you are to hell. They thought they had a lifetime, and they were two and a half miles away from hell. Listen to the ant say, get ready, and listen to the coney say, stay near that rock. Clap your hands and give God some praise. Stay near Jesus. Draw close to God. If you've got the brain of a coney, lead me to that rock that is higher than I. Let's go to creature number three. This is the locust. The best advice from the locust, I'm preaching to the church here now tonight, learn to work together. Somebody say the word together. The kingdom principle is all about cooperation. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 27 says, locusts have no king. What this basically means is they don't have someone out front leading them. They don't have a leader. They don't have a captain. They don't have a general out front. They don't have a king, but yet they have this inner intuition that helps them advance together like an army in ranks and files. A locust is... Basically a grasshopper. It's, it actually is a certain species of grasshopper. And most of the time they are harmless and fragile. Just hang out in the grass, the weeds. But every now and then these locusts get a sense that a famine is coming and that if they're going to eat, they better eat now. And they rub their legs together in a certain way, and it makes a certain noise. And they start communicating one to another, a famine is coming. We better eat while we can. That's the way I felt today at lunch, wasn't it, Pastor? Ate like there was no tomorrow. <laughs> and these grasshopper locusts will 
move their legs in a way, and, make, and they start communicating one with another that famine's coming. If we're going to eat, we better eat now. And they, and they start telling, and by the hundreds and the thousands and by the millions, they all persuade each other that it's going to be a famine. And then they create what is known as a swarm of locusts that are working together like an army, and they are devastating. The largest swarm of locusts known in the United States was about 140 years ago. The only one here that would have remembered it is Donnie Weaver. He's sitting right over here. <laughs> he jokes with me all the time, and he knows I love him. Back in 1874, a swarm of 120 billion locusts grew to a width of 100 miles wide and blocked out the light of the sun. This swarm of locusts moved through the Dakotas, Kansas, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and Texas. According to the research, they ate all the crops, $475 billion worth of crop damage. They ate all the leaves, all the grass, they ate all the wool off all the sheep. They ate harnesses off of the horses. They ate the paint off of wagons and pitchforks. They ate the clothes and the quilts that were hanging on the clothesline. Nobody could stop them. They were an unstoppable army. Now that was for a destructive way. But what do you think would ever happen in the church if we ever got together and God started using the Pentecostals and the Baptist and the Presbyterian and the church down the road and the church up the road and we started working together like an army, I wonder what kind of impact we could have on the community if we just learn to work together. Somebody shout together. Now clap your hands and give God some praise. Thank God. The disadvantage of a locust is they don't have a king. They don't have a leader. Now, we in the church, that's not our problem. We have a leader. Primarily, our leader is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But even in church, we have a leader. The pastor is our leader. We have council members and deacons and elders that are, that are leaders. I'm glad I'm a part of a denomination that has leadership. I'm glad we have a state overseer named Joseph Murkovich in Roanoke. I'm glad we have a general overseer named Tim Hill in Cleveland, Tennessee. I appreciate leadership. I value leadership. Now, some people want to be independent, and here's my opinion. You can take it or leave it. An independent spirit still believes in leadership. They just always want to be the leader. <laughs> That's an independent spirit. They believe in leadership. They just got to be the leader. But I appreciate leadership. Here's the way this thing works. The Holy Ghost gives vision to the pastor, and the pastor casts that vision, and the leaders of the church catch on to that vision. You've done that here, and I congratulate you for that. And the people get in behind that vision. And when you are working together like that, even a destructive fire will never stop what God's got planned to do for you. Even the stuff that has happened in your recent past is not going to stop God's purposes and plans for you because we are working 
together. Somebody shout together. The disciples kind of had this problem. The kingdom principle here is cooperation, and that was part of the, the lacking problem of the disciples. They were more about competition. They got into arguments over who was going to be first. They got into arguments over who was going to get the position. Insomuch that some of the disciples' mother got involved. Now when mama gets involved, and you know she was sweet-talking Jesus. Oh, come on, Jesus. You know my boys are special. I mean, look at that other ragtag bunch you've got. Now my two boys are the brightest ones in the bunch. Let one of them sit on your right, please, pretty please, and let the other one sit on your left. They deserve it. Now, I'm going to add lib a little bit here, but maybe Simon Peter says, wait a minute. If anybody sits on the right, it ought to be me. I'm the only one that ever walked on water. <laughs> you can just imagine this sense of competition. Vying for position, pushing for position. And Jesus says, that's not the way we do things in the kingdom. And he showed them how we do things in the kingdom. He went and got a bucket of water and a towel. And he knelt down in the floor and he started washing their feet. And taking that towel and drying their feet. And he says, the Gentiles are always pushing to see who can be the top and in first place. But he said, in my kingdom, the first has got to be the last. And the last has got to be first. And if you want to be Lord of all, you've got to be servant of all. And it's about cooperation. It's about learning to work together. This is interesting. If you read through the book of Acts... Whenever the church assembled together, the Holy Spirit fell. When they prayed together, the place was shaken. When they agreed together, prayer was answered. When they traveled together, demons were cast out. When they fasted together, the Holy Spirit gave direction. When they stood together, Jesus was magnified. When they sang together, chains fell off and doors swung open. When they rejoiced together, they were filled with boldness. The Bible says throughout the New Testament, we have been quickened together. We sit in heavenly places together. We are framed into a holy temple together. We are built into a holy habitation together. We are joined as the body of Christ together. We are knit in love together. We are heirs of the grace of life Together, and one of these days we're going to be caught up in the air together to meet the Lord forever and forever. Somebody shout together. Thank God we are working together. This is one of the things that so impresses me. Maybe that's not the best word to use, but it's the word I'm going to use right now. When I see the leadership in this church and I see the camaraderie and, and, and the team spirit that you have among yourselves, people ask you, Church of God, strong. Maybe I'm not in position to say this, but I am so proud of you guys. Some of the things you've been through would have devastated other congregations. But you are together, and I compliment you and commend you for your working together. Before I transition to the last point, 
you've seen the little comic strip perhaps in the newspaper. Peanuts, one of my favorites. You know Lucy, she's always moody and domineering. And she comes into the room where her younger brother Linus is watching television and she demands that he change the channel. And he says, well, why do I have to change the channel? And she opens her hand and spreads her fingers apart. She said, you see these five fingers? When they're separate like this, they can't do much. But when they all get together like this, and she makes a fist, she says, now that is a force to be reckoned with. And, of course, Linus changes the channel on the television. And the last little caption of the comic, Linus is looking at his own hand, and he says, I wish you guys could get together. (laughs) Now, I think that Jesus looks at the church and says, I'm glad that you know how to get together. Because when we are together, sort of like a swarm of locusts, there's nothing the devil can do to stop what God has told us to do. You believe it, clap your hands and exalt the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. One character yet to go, point number four, the best advice from the lizard would be keep pressing on. The kingdom principle here is one of determination. Maybe I ought to give this explanation before I read the scripture. Some translations, including the King James, does not use the word lizard, but uses the word spider. There's been a large debate over which animal is actually referred to here, which creature. If you do some thorough research on the Hebrew word, it actually is a gecko. Now, I don't know whether he sells insurance or not, (laughs) but the creature that is listed here is actually a gecko, and some modern translations use the word lizard, which I think is probably the closer and the better translation. So if you'll allow me to refer to this as a lizard. According to Proverbs 30, 28, a lizard can be caught with a hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. These two statements here show you the wide spectrum from where you may find a lizard. The first statement basically says that lizards are close by. They can be caught by the hand. They're just right here at your feet. They're just commonplace. You might find one on the front porch or the back porch. You might open your front door and walk outside, and there's one right there on the steps. They're just just common. They're They're just right here within arm's reach. But later on, that same common lizard may end up in some places you never thought he would be, in some king's palaces. I begin to think about some characters in the Bible that represent that, and I think a beautiful example is Esther. She was actually an orphan. She was just a common Jewish orphan. But before it's all over, she's in the king's palace for such a time as this. Look what God did with somebody like Esther. I thought about David out there in the sheepfold, taking care of the sheep, throwing rocks, playing on his harp. Before it's all over, he's got anointing oil dripping all over him and he ends up becoming a king of Judah and then a king of Israel. And he's right in divine lineage of the Messiah. Look what God did with somebody like David. I thought about Gideon. Gideon, wimpy little Gideon. 98-pound weakling. First time we see him, he's got 
some barley in his hands and he's crushing it, trying to make some bread and he's hiding. I don't think the barley was the most crushed thing in the story. I think his spirit was more crushed than his barley was. And there he is so puny and so weak and so hiding. And all of a sudden the angel drops down right beside of him and looks at that little wimp and says, You mighty man of valor! You great champion of the Lord! God saw something in Gideon that I didn't see in Gideon. From here, he looks like a lizard to me. But oh, what God can do with lizards before it's all over. He's leading a small band of 300, holding lanterns and breaking pitchers and holding up torches and shouting, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. You just don't know what God might do with folks like Esther and David and Gideon and Cliff and Travis, Jeremy, and the rest of you. Help me preach. Look at somebody beside you and say, Go, lizard, go. Go, lizard, go. (laughs) Don't you give up. Don't you quit. You keep pressing on. Don't you give up. It's about determination. You keep climbing. You keep pressing. Press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Don't ever think God can't use somebody like me. Oh, yes, he can. An old song we used to sing in the church. If I was one of them singing preachers, I would sing it, but I'm not. You'll thank me later. (laughs) An old song said, I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. It's about being determined. When I think about this lizard, I have to think about myself. Especially when it came to my call to preach. And I won't tell you the full story I've told you before. But at the age of 16, when God was calling me to preach, I'm thinking, God, you've got the wrong guy. Maybe you want my younger brother. He's the one that could play a piano, write songs, sing songs. He ended up in real estate. He's a salesman. He's a people person. He's the life of the party. Besides, he had a head full of blonde, wavy hair. He had that preacher look, like this guy over here on the front row right there. (laughs) Or God, maybe, maybe it's not my younger brother. Maybe you want my older brother. Now, my older brother, he was the smart one in the bunch. In high school, he was taking all the advanced classes. Spanish level four, trigonometry, calculus, all that stuff. He went to college and he graduated with high honors. Lord, you want a talented preacher? Get my younger brother. You want a smart, intelligent preacher? Get my older brother. But God sometimes chooses lizards. There's a scripture that says he hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. When I was in high school, I was taking subjects like Art and P.E. and study hall. (laughs) I've got a few college credits, but 
not many. I just, I just didn't pursue it. It wasn't my thing. If that's what you're doing, go for it. Give it the best you got. But I was always preoccupied with other stuff. And God was calling me to preach. And I kept thinking, God, this is not for me. And I remember the night, and I won't tell the story right now, but I was in the altar and God spoke to me through a woman that had never met me and confirmed the call of God on my life. And that was the night that I really accepted the call of God. But I was, how do you say this? I was a novice, wet behind the ears, green, whatever terminology you want to use. I didn't know what I was doing. My daddy wasn't a preacher. My granddad wasn't a preacher. Nobody in my family was a preacher. We were all builders. I understand two by fours and two by sixes and 16 penny nails. I understand a four by eight sheet of plywood, sheetrock, bricks, blocks, mortar. I understand all that. I can run wire. I can do some plumbing. But I didn't know anything about a sermon or preaching. God, you got the wrong guy. And so as I started preaching just a little bit here and there, I was looking for anybody that would give me some advice. Now back in those early days of my ministry, the state evangelist at that time was a guy named Keith Davidson. Does anybody in here remember Keith Davidson? I see several hands going up. He died with cancer some years later. But Keith Davidson was an on-fire state evangelist. And whenever he lived in the Martinsville area, but whenever he would come to Richmond area where I live, every meeting he had, I would go to all of his meetings. I became friends with Keith Davidson. And I was just trying to get started. I couldn't even schedule a revival. And I remember saying to Keith, you're going to have to help me. I need some advice from you. And Keith gave me some of the best advice. He said, if you're called of God, I mean really called of God, and I believe you are, then God will supernaturally open up some opportunities for you because otherwise you'd never get them. But here's, what it, here's the advice he gave me. You better do your level best when you have that God-given opportunity. You better pray. You better fast. You better preach the Word. You better love the people. You better give it all you got. He said, because here's what will happen. Pastors all talk among themselves. And he said, if you go into a church and you haven't been praying and you haven't been fasting and you're not preaching the word and you don't love the people and you don't, you don't give it your best, he said, one pastor will tell another one, I had Cliff West over at my church and I'm never going to get him back. And he said, you'll have difficult time ever getting a schedule. But give it all you got. And he says, with God's favor upon your life, one thing will begin to happen. And the, and the first year... Of my ministry, which it was in 1981, it was December. I only preached one time that year because it was in late December. I preached one time. The next year, which was 82, I preached 24 times. That's like twice a month, you know, for the whole year. Then by the third year, I preached 104 sermons. The next year, I preached over 200, and it hasn't slacked much off that. It's been 35 years now. And I found out something. Keith Davidson was right. Somebody said, why are you up there yelling and screaming like you're, because Keith Davidson told me to give it everything I got. <laughs> okay, I've been doing this for years. That's what he told me to do. So just a few weeks ago, I was in northern Virginia. When church was over, 10 or 12 of us got together. I went to the little Dairy Queen, got something to eat. And this little young guy sat right across from me. He's about 20 years old. I didn't know him. He said, you're the state evangelist, right? I said, yeah. 
He said, I believe God's called me to be an evangelist, and I need some advice. The first thought that went through my mind was, don't! (laughs) Because he doesn't understand that I've spent more than 8,000 days and nights away from my wife and kids. He doesn't know that. And I remembered what Keith Davidson said. I said, young man, if you're called to do this, God will give you some divine opportunities at the beginning. But you better give it the absolute best you've got. Pray and fast and get in the Word and preach with passion. He's been doing that. I've been sending him some CDs and uh, some other advice. He's been dialoguing with me, uh, texting and Facebook and some other ways. And I'm trying to pour into him and help him. Again, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm reminiscing, and I don't want to take too long doing this, but when I was about 16 or 17, I was just preaching just a little bit. One of the churches on our district was over at Petersburg. Now, we don't even have a church there anymore, but this was a long time ago. And a fellow was over there pastoring by the name of John Smith. Some of you might remember him, John and Kathy Smith. That's where they were. And John said, I'm going to let you preach over at my church on a Wednesday night. But I want to give you some advice first. I said, I want advice. I'm young at this. I don't know what I'm doing. I need advice. He took me into a little small room over here on this side of the stage, just me and him. And he was like, like a father talking you know, maybe to his own son or something. And, and he says, here's my advice. I want you to preach every time like it's the last time you'll ever get to preach because one of these days it will be. And so that night I preached about an hour and a half. <laughs> And after church, he said, I need to give you some more advice. <laughs> Just because it's your last time, you don't have to preach 90 minutes. <laughs> I'm just thinking about some advice that I was given when I was, when I was just a young little whippersnapper. One more I'll share with you, and I'm closing here. I went to a family reunion down in Kinston, North Carolina. And that's when some of my extended family first found out I was preaching a little bit. And they said, hey, this was on a Saturday night. We were down there Saturday night for a family reunion. And we were going to spend the night and be there for Sunday. They said, why don't you preach at our church? I never met their pastor. He didn't know me from Adam. I said, well, I can't just preach if you invite me. I've got to have an invitation from the pastor. They called the pastor on the phone late on that Saturday night and explained the situation. They put me on the phone with him, and he, he asked me to preach the next morning in his church. And when I got there, it was a little old church. They had about 20 people. They were not with the church of God, but they were charismatic. They were spirit-filled, Pentecostal. This man was old enough to be my grandfather. And he took me into a little hallway over here privately and says, young man, I want to give you some advice. His last name was Murphy. I said, yes, sir, uh, Pastor Murphy, I want some advice. I'm not making fun of him, and do not take it that way because I honor and love this man. He died a few years ago, but here's, here's what he did. He was taller than me, and, of course, I was young and fragile and trying to learn something. And he leaned over, and he put his nose real close to mine, and the Holy Ghost was all over him. He was shaking and jerking. He said, glory to God, brother. Glory to God. He said, when you get in the pulpit tonight, don't hold back, brother. Don't hold back. <laughs> I'll never forget it. I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir, pastor. When I get in that pulpit, I am not going to hold back. 
I remember these words of advice from all these years ago. And I'm not suggesting that I have reached a level where I can start giving advice. But if you'll listen to an ant and a coney and a locust and a lizard, then maybe you'll just listen to one little thing I got to say. If I could only give one piece of advice, and I think that this, this scripture that I'm going to share with you just sort of epitomizes my entire ministry. This is my advice. Just take it to the final slide, please. This is the best advice that I can give you. Draw nigh to God. And He will draw nigh to you. If there's only one thing I can say, that's what I want to say. And here's why I'm saying that. I want, to, I want you to understand where I am coming from. Come play softly, please. I was raised in church by godly parents. I went to church. I heard all the Sunday school lessons. I heard all the sermons. I knew all the church stuff. But I was not living for God. I was living the life of a hypocrite. I act like an angel in here and live like the devil out there. And I don't think the people in church even knew what I was doing. I had to sneak around in sin because mom and dad wouldn't allow it at home. And to me, church was more about religion, not relationship. But let me tell you when it all changed. I will never forget it. In a revival service very similar to this, the evangelist asked everybody to get in a line. He wanted to pray for everybody. Well, we only had about 25 people there. And I did not want to get in that line. But all the other 24 people did. And I looked too conspicuous in my seat. So reluctantly, I went and got at the back of the line. The back of that line was real close to the back of the church, and I was of a mind, sneak out while I can. But I didn't. And this brother was so in touch with God, it scared me. This first person stepped up to him, and he said, oh, the Holy Spirit just spoke to me. Do you know what we mean in the church when we say a prophet starts reading your mail? How many knows what that means? I've been telling you details of your life that no one would have told him but God. He lays hands on this guy and it looks like somebody hit him right in the forehead with a baseball bat. Boom! He hits the floor. And everybody steps up one step and he says to this lady, Ma'am, the Holy Ghost just said something to me about you. I was in line for something I didn't want to be in line for. Because I certainly didn't want him telling everybody what I had been doing in private. He lay hands on them. They hit the floor. We all move up. He lay hands on them, prophesy. They hit the floor. We all move up. And every time I take a step, I'd say, oh, dear God. Before I get to the front of this line, I want to be saved and sanctified and full of the Holy Ghost. God, whatever else you do tonight, when I get up there, 
please do not let that man tell everybody in this church what I have been doing. My only consolation was by the time I got to the front of the line, me and the preacher were the only two standing. And I was hoping everybody was in the spirit and didn't hear a word he had to say. (laughs) I guess God honored my prayer because he never did tell everybody what I was doing. My two brothers had just fallen out in the floor right in front of me. And I was about five feet away. It looked like a cyclone had come through there. People were laying everywhere in a little double-wide trailer of a church. And with his finger curled like this, like, come over here to me. I knew what he was thinking. I've been waiting on you all night. I was so nervous. I was shaking. I stepped over my brother, stepped over my brother. I'm just thinking, just don't tell everybody what I've been doing. Just don't tell them. He said, young man, raise your hands. I put him up like I was under arrest. Whatever you want me to do, sir, just don't tell everybody what I've been doing. He said, repeat these words after me. And it was the words of an old song. He said, take this whole world, but give me Jesus. But see, when I said take this whole world, I knew what I was talking about because that's That's where I was living in my heart. Take this whole world. Just give me Jesus. That preacher reached out his hand to touch me. Honestly, I don't think he ever touched me. When his hand was coming towards me, the aura of God's glory. God, I remember it. And I felt myself falling. And I thought to myself, my brothers are back there. My my older brother, my younger brother, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurt my head. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall on somebody behind me. I don't know how it happened, but I ended up laying on the floor without laying on top of anybody. And I'm being as honest as I can possibly be. I never knew when I hit the floor, I felt like I was in a cloud. I felt like I was on a waterbed. I was in some utopian place of God's presence that I didn't even know existed. I knew amazing grace and I'll fly away. But I didn't know God's presence was that real. It was about 20 minutes later when I climbed up out of that floor and I was looking around at that crowd thinking, did all of you people just go to the same place that I just went? The next night, I did not get on the back row and write notes and tell jokes with my friends. I got up on the front row. And I watched that preacher everywhere he went. And I don't care what kind of altar call he gave, I went. One night he said, this is healing night. If you need a healing, I was the first one in line. I did not need a healing. 
I just wanted him to pray for me. And I wanted to get back in that place of the reality of God's glory. A night or two later, he says, we're going to pray for the marriages and the couples. We want you to... I was about 17 years, 16, 17 years old. I wasn't married. One thing about marriage, I was the first one in line. <laughs> Somebody said, what's he doing up there? I'll tell you what I was doing up there. I was drawing nigh to God so God could draw nigh to me. I was hungry for more of God. And I was so sad when at the end of two weeks the revival was over. Because the next day I came home from school and did my homework and for the first time in 14 days we didn't have church that night. And I thought, now what am I going to do? So I decided I'll just have a little church right by myself in my bedroom. Upstairs at mom and dad's house. I don't know why, but I started with Matthew chapter 1, just started reading the Bible. That first chapter is a doozy. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob. I had all the begotten I could deal with. And I read chapter 2, and it reminded me of the wise men that we talk about at Christmas time. And I read chapter 3. And I heard John the Baptist saying, Somebody's coming after me that's mightier than I. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. I got in chapter 4, and I read about Jesus saying it is written man shall not live by bread alone but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God I got in chapter 5 and heard Jesus in the beatitude saying blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled and when I got to chapter 6 my life changed because I read a scripture that says thou when thou prayest Enter into thy closet, and the God which sees you in secret will reward you openly. I didn't know you were supposed to pray in the closet. Nobody ever told me that. Well, it doesn't have to be a literal closet, but I thought it did. And I looked over at my closet, and I thought, is that what the Bible says? The really, the closet? And I had to move my cleats and my baseball glove and my football helmet and moved some stuff out of the way but I got in that closet and I'll, I'll tell you what I learned the same God that touched me nightly in that revival met me in a personal way in my own closet I know what it's like to move from religion to relationship. It's my life story. And if there's one bit of advice I could ever tell you, it is this. Listen carefully. Draw nigh to God because you will want what happens next. He will begin to reveal himself to you and draw nigh to you. You will experience him in ways you never dreamed. Stand with me, please.
The Lord says, I am passionate for you. I want you to be passionate for me. I love you. I want you to love me. I adore you. I want you to adore me. Draw near to me, says the Lord. And I will indeed draw closer to you, revealing unto you my love for you, my destiny for you, my power, my compassion. There are higher heights for you, says the Lord, and deeper depths. Draw nigh unto me, and I will tonight draw nigh unto you, says the Lord.